you're a software developer who wants to take your special skills and help your country, what should you do? Join the military? That's a good option for some, but it might not be a good fit for you personally. In the United States, we have a very interesting civil option that's quite new, the United States Digital Service. This service was created by President Obama to fix broken government software systems, such as the rocky start to the healthcare system. Developers and designers can serve in the service for as little as three months or as long as four years, and they get paid roughly market rates. It's an interesting model indeed, and I'm excited to have David Holmes from the U.S. Digital Service here to talk about their projects and how they're using Python to make the government work for the people. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 219, recorded June 19th, 2019. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy. Keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm and follow the show on Twitter via at TalkPython. This episode is brought to you by the Local Maximum Podcast and Rollbar. Please check out what they're offering during their segments. It really helps support the show. Hey everyone, before we get to the interview, I want to quickly tell you about a new course we just launched. It's our first major Flask course, and it's called Building Data-Driven Web Apps in Flask and SQL Alchemy. This one's a deep dive into Flask. We cover things like routing, models, templates, databases and migrations, and even deployment and security. And we do all of this in the context of building a clone of the pypi.org website. Check it out over at training.talkpython.fm. If you're not sure if you want to choose Flask just yet for your web app, then give our 100 Days of Web course a look. We cover many frameworks and programming models in 25 four-day projects, so you get a super wide view of what's out there. Then you could pick Flask or Django or Pyramid or something else. Thanks for checking it out. Now let's get to the interview. David, welcome to Talk Python to me. Hey, Michael, I'm glad to be on it. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. It sounds like you're doing some really cool stuff at a place that honestly wasn't on my radar until we started talking, but it's such a cool idea. So I'm really looking forward to talking about the United States Digital Service with you and this, this what all this is. But before we get into all that, of course, so let's start with your story. How did you get into programming? Uh, I got into programming. So when I was a kid, I had a computer that was left to me. It was the HP 6475Z. Remember the model name and everything. <laughs> wow. I would take that computer apart and um, put it back together. I had a zip drive, like a zip 100 megabyte drive, if you remember those. Yeah, was those the purple drives? Those big purple drives that were like weird, expensive disks? This one I had internal, which is like pretty cool, but it was like super used disk. It's like a floppy disk, like times three. <laughs> yeah, it was like a hard drive that you could take out, sort of. It was weird. I remember those, but those were cool. Like it was just a hundred megabytes. Yeah, they were huge. I mean, a hundred megabytes. Those are huge, right? Like I could download that now in like three seconds. But it was a big deal then. <laughs> At the time, it was like the best thing ever. And I would just take that computer apart, put it together nonstop. And then, like once I kind of got bored of taking it apart and put it back together a hundred times. I started reading online about this thing, Linux, and everybody's using it. And so my grandma, so I wanted to use it, but I had dial-up at the time. And so I had to like ask my grandma for some money for it. And she was just like, over the summer, she was just like, you're going to do a bunch of chores, so you get $20 so that way I can order the CD. And it was Mandrake Linux. And then I got that CD. And this is back when Linux did not have great drive support like it does now. I mean, it, it still could be a little bit better, but... 
So I started having to like dig deep <laughs> until like the C drivers and like edit it and like kind of like see if that worked because I wanted to get my network in on Linux. That's right. Like maybe that zip drive doesn't have a driver, so you're out of luck or something weird like that, right? So as you know, Linux they they do a lot in Python, so that was just my default choice of writing like just scripts and things like that. And then so forth over time, I ended up learning PHP because um, I want to get more into web development and a lot of businesses use PHP. But for me, Python was always my go-to when I wanted to just do something like a quick script and stuff. And then I got into Node.js because um, it was like super simple to set up a server. Then like Flask came out for Python. So I started going back into Python. And yeah, from there, I've just been kind of using Python ever since for all my personal projects. Outside of like the here and there, of like I want to try something new thing. Like I have been working on a little bit of going stuff which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's cool. So did you go to college for this or are you pretty much self-taught? Pretty much self-taught. So I did go to college, but I went there for business and not really for programming. And then I switched to a computer science major, but then I realized that um, a lot of it was teaching me was Java and things like that. I wanted to do web development. So what I ended up doing was going to a ton of hackathons. Like I probably went to 20 plus hackathons over a year. Oh, wow. That's awesome. And just sort of working with people in the community. <laughs> and I was going like every weekend <laughs> at one point. <laughs> You're like, I got a hackathon problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at one point, yeah, it kind of felt like that. My girlfriend was not my wife at the time. I was just like, man, you're just constantly going to these things. And then from there, I started meeting people in the community. And from there, I just started getting better at doing web development stuff. And I ended up getting my first job and at an ad tech company in New York City. And that opened the doors up for me to then get into the tech industry more. Yeah, that's really cool. You know, I think that's interesting that you started out in business and you were kind of already doing programming and you tried your hand at com the computer science degrees. I felt personally, at least at the time when I was in college, that the computer science degrees were interesting, but they were not they were not really teaching you to build applications and websites in the sense that maybe you do as a professional developer. It was more like really theoretical stuff that, you know, probably is interesting, but yeah. how often you do like teach you how to build operating systems or like understand how like quick sort works and how to maybe create new algorithms and genetic algorithms and, and like all that stuff, super interesting, but it's not going to help me, you know, build like a scalable website. Per, per se, right? And that's, that's kind of like after I did the business and the computer science courses, it's like, look, I'm, I'm making a ton of progress in the hackathon world. So I sort of dropped out of college and just started pursuing my career from there. Yeah, that's cool. I kind of did the same thing with grad school. I'm like, you know what? This stuff I'm doing on the side is way more productive than you. So I will go do that. <laughs> yeah. You worked in New York. There's a lot of uh, big time startups and tech companies in New York. And so that must have been a fun scene to be in, especially with all the hackathons right around there, right? Yeah. And then I guess from there, I went from my hackathon you know, addiction to sort of a startup addiction. I just sort of worked for tons of different startups. <laughs> cool. It was really fun. And the scene, like you said, it's like pretty amazing. For sure. That brings us to today and, and what you're doing today, which is interesting that, you know, the U.S. government doesn't sound very startup-like, but the United States Digital Service, which you have to tell us what that is it's kind of got this sort of like stealth startup skunkworks mode within the government right yeah we treat ourselves as like a startup within the government and pretty much for those who don't know what us digital service is so basically we started in 2014 with healthcare.gov if uh, your listeners remember that um how bad it was <laughs> and how much it was on cnn and things like that and president obama was just asking his advisors and he said hey how come on the campaign trail we can accept millions of donations 
But when we were trying to give millions of people health care, like the thing crashes and they had to explain, like, you know, President Obama, the way we deal things in pregnancy is different than government. And sometimes things can be very complex in government. So President Obama said, how about we try this? How about we take some people from the private industry and just throw them at healthcare.gov and see what happens? And as the story goes over the next couple of weeks, we was able to help get healthcare.gov back up and 20 plus million people now on health insurance. Health insurance. And the president said, this works so well. How about we start? something like this. And that's how U.S. Digital Service formed. We're about to be five years old this year, um, which is pretty amazing. We're going to be celebrating after birthday in August. And yeah, ever since then, then we sort of did this tour of duty model where we have people come after this three months up to four years and from private industry kind of take a break and help serve their country in just a different capacity using the skills that they have. That's a really cool idea. And I, you know, I feel like I have not worked with the government very much, but my experience there is that it's, I don't know, there, there's a lot of friction and it, Whenever I have to go to some sort of government website, like just yesterday, I had to go find, I don't know, some form and fill out something for the postal service. And I was like, wow, this website is bad. Like, why is it like this? You know what I mean? And it's just, it's really interesting to think of how you might systematically go through these government agencies and upgrade them and modernize them and just sort of put more lightweight systems in place. Like, not just systems in software, but systems as in the way people work. We're about 170 people strong, and we're a mix of designers, uh, procurement folks, engineers. We have an awesome talent team, an awesome comms team. But one of the groups here, you know, even though I'm in engineering, um, one of the groups here I really take pride of is our design team who goes on, does a ton of user research and making sure that we actually build the right thing. That sounds easy, but that's really, really hard. And and one of our values here at USCS is we design with users, not for them. So we make sure that the users are included in every single conversation that we have. I can imagine it's easy to walk up to some antiquated system and go, well, this is written in COBOL and it's all client server and these things are broken. So let's, you know, make it a API with Flask or whatever. But really maybe the idea is like the only reason this thing exists is because it's bridging this these other systems that actually those are the things you need to modernize or like it just needs a different approach, right? Like people can get into ruts and especially in the government, I would think. (laughs) Just to sort of round it out, you work in the engineering department at United States Digital Service doing um, software engineering there, right? Yep. So I'm the director of engineering um, and my journey to becoming director of engineering. So when I first came on board to United States Digital Service, I went out to Social Security Administration to help with the disability claims processing system. And then from there, I went to the Department of Education where my main date was to help with student debt and default. And then from there, I went to small business administration where I helped make it easier for people to apply for the 8A program, which is just a disadvantaged program where if you are disadvantaged, a historically disadvantaged business, you can apply for this program and it would allow you to at least have a level playing field with some of these big, big vendors that, that the government uses. And Congress sets aside billions of dollars for this program. But one of the problems was because it was part paper and part digital. It would take people too long to figure out the process, and they would hire lawyers. And at the at the expense of the lawyers, it would turn out to be $30,000 um, just to hire the lawyers. It felt like this free form. So what we did was make it simple, right? And we made it 100% <laughs> digital, so that way folks don't have to pay $30,000. And as we know, if you're able to be on an equal playing field with the rest of these big businesses as a disadvantaged business, then you're able to uplift your community and hire people. So it had these downstream effects of just as soon as these people was able to apply for the program and get into it, it was able to have tremendous. Yeah, just, it opened up all this opportunity, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, when I think about working with like these requests for proposals and other stuff that the government agencies have, it's just like, well, 
you know, big companies have people whose job it is to understand what that actually means, the flow that it actually goes to. Like, it just is so opaque and challenging. So anything you can do to make that uh, simpler uh, seems really good to, like, shake up the incumbents, <laughs> you know, the the big Lockheeds or whatever that are, like, the ones that kind of know the process, right? Yep. And um, so for, for that website, it was certified SBA.gov. And then after that, I went to FEMA, where we helped with the Grants Management Modernization Project, which is we're trying to take 10 different grant systems, which can be kind of confusing to navigate. And how do we shrink it down to just one system that's easy to use? And then from there, I became Director of Engineering. So we had a, a, quite a journey at USDS. <laughs> Lots of impact. <laughs> that is quite a journey. Yeah. And you know, one of the things I think is really interesting, like it's super fun to work at startups. You talked about that in your startup addiction for a while, which is super cool. And you have all this fun tech. But one of the challenges is, you know, sometimes those startups, they don't really go very far, right? And you, you work really hard to build out some product and only a couple of people use it, right? Hopefully that's not the case. And if you're getting hired there, you know, it may be well beyond that. Writing software is super fun, but if people don't use it or it doesn't have an impact, then it's a whole lot less fun than, you know, what you had imagined. But I imagine working on things like FEMA is pretty gratifying, right? You know, there's a hurricane, it wipes out, you know, some region of the country. People are, you know, they're in a certain, they're like, it's an emergency, right? Federal emergency, whatever, right? So you're there to, to help. And I suspect that's pretty gratifying. It really is. Um, just all the different agencies that we worked on, this is really amazing that you can see the impact of it and sometimes firsthand. And I think one of the, the things for me is, uh, so because of our tour of duty models, I'm coming up on my fourth year. It's just like, what do I do next? Like there's tons of opportunity because we have tons of alumni, but it's like, how, where do I go next to find this impact? that so used to happen for sure. I, I can imagine like, what am we going to build? That's going to help 20 million people or something like that. Right. So you mentioned this duty model, which I think is pretty interesting. Like a lot of countries have like a civil service or even military service that is mandatory, right? Germany has it. Israel has it. Turkey has it. The U.S. doesn't really have something like that. And like, say, in Germany, there's the military. You you could go into the military or you can go into like a civil service and say, drive an ambulance or be an EMT or, or something to this effect, Right. So in the U.S., we don't really have that. We have the military, but it's, you know, volunteer only. I don't know much else beyond that. You know, maybe Peace Corps, but that's not a U.S. thing. So this duty model, I think, is, is pretty interesting. You want to tell us about it? Yeah, so you can come on short. It's three months up to four years. So, you know, maybe you want to take a break at, you know, your regular day job and just help, you know, create impact at, at the federal level in the government. Maybe you see something in the news that really inspires you and you're like, hey, where can I go to go help with something just for a short time? Right. Because, you know, maybe you don't want to move from San Francisco or Seattle to D.C. and you just come in for a short time. So we have an engineer right now that's coming just for three months and is having tons of impact right now um, at the particular agency that they are at. Um, and it came for three months because they have a perfect school and their child out where they live in Michigan. And they're like, they don't want to, they don't want to leave the child for, you know, to come to DC and their friends and things like that. But it's summer vacation now. So they was able to, you know, take a three month sabbatical and come help in just a different way. And the kids get to come enjoy some of the DC weather and all the free museums that we have and, and all those things. So I think that's really amazing that we could do that. And you could just stay up to four years and just have tons of impact at different places. And, and that's what I love about the tour of duty model that we have here because then what it enables is people who maybe wouldn't want to be permanent federal employees to come in and actually help the federal government in, in many different ways but it also allows for folks to 
have that impact that they maybe not would have had before. Right. You know, maybe you're like a super good developer at some tech company in San Francisco or Portland or whatever. And you see, you know, kind of what I described, like, whoa, this stuff is messed up. I could probably really improve this if I just worked on this for three or four weeks, right? We could really help this process or whatever, right? But you don't necessarily want to, say, leave the West Coast, drop out of your tech position and say, I'm just going to become a government employee. Like, that's, you know, it's great. Some people want that. But a lot of people, I can see that as like, you know, that's just a deal breaker for me, right? But the fact that you could drop in for, say, a summer and come work on something like that actually sounds super cool to me. One of the things that that's amazing and like why I love our tour duty model again is because you can come in and actually bring in new stuff in the private industry. So sometimes you find that people in government who worked there 20 plus years, they know what they only know. And, you know, maybe it's COBOL, maybe it's mainframes. And, and it's great that we can have this constant revolving door of just new people, new ideas, fresh ideas. Because as we know, tech industry is changing every year, right? And we can have these new folks come in and actually question the status quo and say, like, okay, this should be better. And in the private industry, this is what we do today. And some folks are just increasingly questioning impact at tech companies. And we have just a clear approach where we, where anything you, you do, in the federal government, you have a chance to impact millions and millions of people to make their lives a little bit easier and better. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by the Local Maximum podcast. The Local Maximum is dedicated to examining emerging technology, software, and social trends through the perspective of machine learning engineer Max Sklar and his guests. Max talks to creative engineers and entrepreneurs about building products in emerging technology. The Local Maximum takes concepts from the machine learning and data science world and applies them to current events and everyday life. The show speaks specifically to people working in the software industry and challenges you to think critically about the projects you work on and the teams you join, as well as practical advice for growing your career. That's why engineers and product developers are tuning in to The Local Maximum. And you can get it anywhere you listen to podcasts or just visit talkpython.fm slash max. And if I can recommend an episode, you should check out number 73. That's interesting. Maybe we could dig into that for a second. Like, I would say, you know, you talked about taking this computer apart and, and getting the zip drive and just all the early days. And I felt like in the early days, just technology was just clearly a good, right? It was going to connect people. It was going to empower people who maybe didn't, you know, live in a big city or there's just so many cool things that it made possible, right? Like the first time I used Shazam, right? My mind was just blown, right? Like it knows what song is playing. It's like magic in my hand, right? But I feel like it's, I don't know, it's its a bit of more of a mixed bag these days. Yeah. And like a, a huge thing is, you know, data and privacy and like, why are we building this? And one of the things the government is like, we are uh, privacy by default. So everywhere you'll see signs like PII, don't, don't do PII. And like, that's a huge thing in governments to make sure that privacy is enabled. And that's one thing I didn't understand when I came into government originally. I thought that like the IRS talks to everybody, right? I just assumed every federal agency had my tax information and could just easily get it. And like, no, that's <laughs> right. the, case. the DMV call. knows, they know. <laughs> hey, they just know me. I'm like, I had to fill FS86. And I was like, don't you have all this information on me? And, um, <laughs> and the reality is, no, the government's pretty siloed because the government by default tries to do as, uh, tries to be as privacy concerned as possible. So, for example, in the IRS, they have a law called 6103 where, where people just can't get access to your tax returns. And that's yeah. a good thing. 
for me, that's like a huge benefit. And like, even in my personal life, I'm super privacy concerned. I don't like using social media or I don't have social media because like I care about my privacy a lot. And like, it's interesting when I came into government, I just assumed everything was open to federal employees. And that's just not true. That's pretty interesting. So uh, a few more questions on the duty model. Like, do you guys, you know, you talked about this person come from Michigan, people come from the tech industry. It sounds like these are paid positions that people can come and take. They can take them for three months, but they could also take them for four years. One, is that right? Are these regular paid jobs with all the benefits or do you guys accept interns? What experience do you have to have? Like, can you come in as like, hey, I took a boot camp. I know some stuff, but I'm not really quite that great yet, but I'd love to be part of this. Like, what's the spectrum look like there? So we try to do uh, mid-level career uh, folks just uh, looking at something between just because they come with that experience. I can think they yeah. can sit in the room yeah. with like a secretary um, and folks like that. But but we do hire like exceptionally enge- exceptional engineers who are young. But the salaries are competitive. It is a federal job and you do get paid for it. You can't work for the government for free. And it maxes out at a GS-15 step 10, which is about $164,000 a year. So that's pretty competitive in industry, I see. The only thing is you get really, really good benefits, but you don't get the stock options that you may get in the startup. You know, that could be good or that might, you know, that might just go to zero, right? Like (laughs) you might pay taxes on it and then it goes to zero, right? It might even be worse than zero. I think that's interesting, right? Like obviously you don't get the equity, I mean, maybe you do, but what are you going to do? Sell the government? It doesn't matter, right? So (laughs) I do think it's an interesting model and it's it's cool that it's a paid program with somewhat competitive rates. I mean, competitive is always relative, right? Competitive to somebody working downtown San Francisco and competitive to somebody working the outskirts of Kansas City. Like those are, you know, multiples of different salaries that might be competitive, right? But but it's still, it's cool that it's uh, accessible to like most folks in terms of, Salary on the equity part, like we all have equity in this country, right? And we want to make this sure this country is as you know great as possible. So, the impact that you can have here is like amazing. Yeah, for sure, that's cool. One of the things I think that is cool about places like Stanford and Harvard and some of these high end education places is not so much what you learn, right? Like. Uh, you and I are both uh, significantly self-taught in programming, and I feel like we could probably, you know, hang with a lot of those folks. But what's really interesting is the connections you make and, and sort of the, the groups you get to run in and, and so on. I feel like there might be something kind of like this here. Do you feel like there's a, a lot of, you talked about alumni and stuff, a lot of interesting connections or even companies that get started after these tours of duty? Definitely before USCS. Like I, you know, I feel like I can, I can run with the best of them. But now I feel like after USCS, I'm going to have tons of connections and networks. So because we hire people from all sorts of all places around the country and from all different types of companies, from big, huge ones, from Google to small startups. And some folks go back into the the company that they came from originally because they just did a short tour duty model. But one of the things that's amazing that I find here is how many people go out and start their own company. So we have people who successfully got into Y Combinator at the USDS. We have people who said, you know, something after my tour of duty, I find that the problem may be easier to tackle from the outside than the inside and has started startups um, uh, that's now part of this thing called the Digital Coalition. Some people stay in public service. So the former director of engineering here at uh, USDS became deputy CIO over at OPM. We have one of our former product folks, Stratops folks, became the CIO over at uh, Center for Medicare and Medicare Services. And yeah, cool. former alumni 
Charles Worthington became CTO of the VA. So some people say in government, some people go back at the private industry, but I find that those connections to those and that network of people is just invaluable. And today, like I said before, we are 170 people strong, but our alumni now is at 200 strong. I'm sure that's, that's really interesting. You know, once you get inside the system, I'm sure it opens your eyes to ways things could be done better. You know, like the big deal with a lot of startups is disrupting like semi-broken models, right? Like we have Airbnb with hotels, Uber, super, like I, taxis make me crazy. Like I feel like I'm being both ripped off and inconvenienced at the same time, right? It's just like, ah, these taxis. And, you know, they came along and for better or worse, they've done a lot to like smooth over those edges. But if you're inside the government and you work at... (laughs) With these agencies, I'm sure there's a ton of opportunities to see how you could create a business that would kind of do the same, but in that space. What do you think? Yeah, I think there's tons of opportunity. And, and sometimes it's hard to make change from inside. And sometimes it's easy to make a change from outside, um, depending on the you know, project. And you, know, you mentioned like a couple of companies and like some people don't want to do make the next Uber for dog walkers. Right. And we get an yeah. opportunity to, <laughs> to, you know, have some some amazing impact. Yeah, I do feel like. Startups are interesting, but a lot of times they're kind of, I don't know what's the right way to put it, but they, they don't, they're not contributing like a whole ton of value to the world. They're just, I don't know, like <laughs> making some little tiny tech thing better or more fun, but it, it's not the same as like helping veterans or whatever. You talked about this article on Hacker News in your profile, which I thought was pretty interesting. I'm going to link to this Hacker News article. Maybe you could summarize it a little bit for us, but I'm going to do a little excerpt from it. So talking about like what the USDS is trying to solve and some of these tech problems that people run into. So one of the commenters on here said, yeah, my friend described a process in one government department where digital documents were received, they were printed, and then they're physically mailed to some back office site and then manually entered into a system by typing the contract for scanning was worth millions of dollars and the contract for the back end was also worth millions and people's jobs depend on this whole useless exercise. But the reason it was super hard to reform because like, why would that company that has this whole business of people like entering stuff want to just make it an API that's like, you know, one one thousandth the revenue or whatever, right? That sounds like a lot of those problems. That's kind of what I was thinking of when like you could disrupt those things if you were not part of that system, right? You can also disrupt it internally, right? So then we can come in and say like, yeah, maybe you shouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> why are you doing this? And like, here's a better way of doing that. And one of the things that we become super successful at is Sometimes we just build prototypes and just show the agency and say, like, look, here's a better way of doing it. Here's this prototype with an API and it can make the lives a lot easier. Yeah. You know, the, an example that's really recent and was just in the news. I don't know if it has anything at all to do with you guys, but there was this proposal for the United States tax service, the IRS, to basically make an online system so it's super easy for most people to file their taxes. <laughs> online, just fill out, you know, like a few forms and you're good. If you don't have like really complicated consulting or whatever. And there was a huge pushback. Even in Congress, there was a pushback for like, well, we don't want that. We don't want people to have this for free. There's businesses that are built on this, right? What is Intuit going to do, right? Things like this. That was crazy. That's one of the things that we hope to make an impact on from the inside. Yeah, that's cool. I definitely, I do think that that one out that they said, no, actually... (laughs) 
this is bad, but yeah, I mean, there was really sketchy stuff. Like some of the companies that were supposed to be filling that gap and providing the free stuff, they were putting like a robots TXT to say, don't index the free stuff. So you can't Google for it. And like, it was really weird. So I'm really glad to see that that's making progress. But let's talk about some of the projects that you guys are working on. So it sounds like the genesis of this whole thing was let's come in and fix a healthcare.gov. Like that was sort of the origin, huh? Yeah, pretty much the origin. Of let's go in and, and see if we can take people from the private industry, drop them into government and see if they can fix healthcare.gov. And then that turned out to be successful. And then it was just like, hey, let's see if we can replicate this across different agencies. There's a lot of stuff that's like that. Let's just start going from one to one and start fixing them. That's super. Another one was VA.gov, which is the Veterans Association right? For veterans of the military service, right? That involved a lot of Python fixing up, right? Tell us about that one. Tech stack for that is Ruby on Rails, but a lot of like the DevOps scripts involve Python. Okay. I mean, not so much Python. One of the things that we found when we go to these different agencies is they already have a team established and we like to try to use the tools that they're familiar with. So like as in my personal capacity, I love Python, you know, and a different agency, they may be a Ruby on Rails shop or a Java shop or even in some cases, a cobalt shop. <laughs> and it just makes sense to try and work with what they currently are using. So that way, we don't have to rebuild everything from scratch. And on top of that, train all the engineers on this new thing. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Rollbar. Got a question for you. Have you been outsourcing your bug discovery to your users? Have you been making them send you bug reports? You know, there's two problems with that. You can't discover all the bugs this way. And some users don't bother reporting bugs at all. They just leave, sometimes forever. The best software teams practice proactive error monitoring. They detect all the errors in their production apps and services in real time and debug important errors in minutes or hours, sometimes before users even notice. Teams from companies like Twilio, Instacart, and CircleCI use Rollbar to do this. With Rollbar, you get a real-time feed of all the errors so you know exactly what's broken in production. And Rollbar automatically collects all the relevant data and metadata you need to debug the errors so you don't have to sift through logs. If you aren't using Rollbar yet, they have a special offer for you, and it's really awesome. Sign up and install Rollbar at talkpython.fm rollbar, and Rollbar will send you a $100 gift card to use at the Open Collective, where you can donate to any of the 900-plus projects listed under the Open Source Collective or to the Women Who Code organization. Get notified of errors in real time and make a difference in open source. Visit talkpython.fm slash Rollbar today. That makes a lot of sense because you don't want to just go in there and say, well, we're throwing out all your code. Here's a bunch of Python. And yeah, I know you know Java, but too bad, Python. And yeah. now then leave, right? And say, now go be productive, right? So you just, <laughs> it's not really exactly what the mission is, yeah? Yeah. So we just try and work with, with our stakeholders and our partners on what's the best solution for not just them, but also for the American people. Yeah. So it sounds like part of that project was this wait times API to like help build systems around understanding if you can go see a doctor or something like that. Is that right? One of the things is developers.va.gov, where there was a lot of work that we helped with, they're just setting up APIs and making sure that that the people on the ground can deploy these APIs in an efficient way. And one of them is the wait time one. So you can actually build an app right now, you get an API key to help veterans figure out the wait times. Uh, for I think it even goes even down into details of like wait times for what specific like doctor you're looking for too. And you could pick the best API around you. Yeah, cool. So yeah, there's even a developer.va.gov. And that's pretty cool, the whole API platform and stuff. Nice. Another one was Medicare and Medicaid. Oh, so you're talking about the blue button API. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty cool. So one of the things we found out is that folks don't 
go to government sites for everything, right? And doctors want to use the software that that they use normally for the rest of the patient. So what we did was build this API that allows, and just a secure way people can verify their identity and just a secure way give those healthcare records to the doctors and the systems that's, that works best for them. And that's a huge thing because Medicare and Medicaid has 57 million beneficiaries within it. So now these beneficiaries can be able to transfer their health records to the doctors using this API, which is really, really cool. Yeah, that's a huge part of <laughs> of the economy, but also people's lives, right? On the website, it says there was 8 million lines of cobalt and... This part blows my mind. 2.5 million lines of assembly code. Like, that's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) These are some systems that haven't been updated in 60, 70 years. So we kind of come in and it's interesting because particularly for this project, we had an engineer buy a COBOL book, right? (laughs) And learn COBOL (laughs) and try to learn (laughs) COBOL so we can help out with this project. And now, like, I was was talking to them before they left the tour of duty. I was like, yeah, you know, I know you didn't expect to come here to do COBOL, but you left now knowing COBOL and you can put it on your resume. How many places could you go to where you could do that? <laughs> you can get COBOL experience. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Like, I doubt anybody, not anybody, I doubt many people want to work in COBOL, especially from, you know, scratch these days. But there's got to be a huge opportunity to know COBOL and modern stuff and, and be part of that transition. Huge opportunity, like, for me, for example, I didn't even know they still wrote books about Cobol. Right? I'm just like, <laughs> where do you find one at? Like, did you go to your local libraries and on Amazon? But yeah, huge. If you could just come in and even just, you know, pick up Cobol just to help modernize something. So one thing I find that that's really cool that we're doing at uh, CMS and HHS is right now there's a Medicare payment processing system. That's all written in Cobol for the most part. And they want to modernize and they tried modernizing it for multiple times. So we did, we went in there and we said, how about we just take a piece of it? Just a small piece of what this, this mainframe COBOL app does. And let's put that in the cloud and let's see how that works. And we've been really, really successful in that. And now Healthy Human Services can see that, okay, you can just take a piece. You can kind of do a piecemeal. So eventually we're going to get to a point where in a few years, we're going to be off of the mainframe, off of COBOL and, and have all of that entirely into the cloud. I mean, that's why we still have COBOL in these mainframes running 2.5 million lines of assembly is because people just say we have to flip the switch. And what happens when you flip the switch and does, you know, they've been built up and layered on top of, you know, change after change for 50 years. Like how hard is that to recreate from scratch? It's got to be tough. Yeah, super tough. <laughs> and it's, it's a huge program, right? And a lot of people depend on this. And, and we're worried that a couple of things, right? That there won't be enough COBOL developers to help maintain this because healthcare laws change every single year. And 10,000 people enroll in this every single day. So it can't go down. It's, and Medicare and Medicaid is about 4% of the, the GDP. So even if it goes down for an hour, you're talking hundreds of millions of dollars and payments that's not going on to doctors. Right. And people who have to have like emergency surgery and all sorts of stuff, right? Yep. Or even worse, maybe like some kind of, you know, they didn't get that test that would have let them know they had cancer so they could have gotten early treatment, right? Some bad knock-on effect, right? That's like the things that sort of keep me up at night every day. <laughs> and, um, making sure that like systems like that don't go down, right? Because if they go down, that really... That really does have like effect on a ton of people's lives. And in some cases, it, it's literally life and death, right? Yeah. That keeps me up at night, make sure we do that. And I'm glad like the team that we have over there is just kind of saying like, hey, let's not do it this, this waterfall way that, that we keep trying. That's not working, right? Like, let's try it this agile way. Let's do it piece by piece. And eventually 
we'll get it to the cloud and then we can scale this out. So, you know, as you know, like in most places, like they have open enrollments, right? So that's when you need the most servers. So then we can scale that up when we need the most servers and scale it down as needed and be cost effective, but also be able to help folks in, in need at the time of, of them being in need. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and also just hire people, interesting, talented people, right? Because... If you're looking around for jobs, you're like, oh, there's this cool robotic company in Pittsburgh I could work for. They're doing JavaScript. I'd rather do Python. Oh, there's this Medicare place that does COBOL and assembly. Should I go work for that? No. Right? Like, that's just, it's got to be a lot of the thinking, right? But if all of a sudden it's like, hey, help us move to the cloud, do a bunch of microservices, it'll be fun, right? Like, all of a sudden that's a different set of people you could reach. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, for sure. So another <laughs> understatement, right? So other project that looked cool was the college scorecard. Tell us about that. This was a project that we did at Department of Education. This is part of the the mandate of how to how do we get students out of debt in default. And one of the things that we found is several things, right? That a lot of people don't even apply for FAFSA for financial aid because they just assume they won't get it. So we built this to like say like, hey no, actually on average based upon a range of your family's income for this particular school, you can get financial aid. And another thing that we realized was that some people go into debt default because they don't realize how much the college or the program would cost. So one of the things that we worked with the college scorecard was making sure that not only do we tell you how much on average a four-year degree or two-year degree at that school will cost, but also what is the average amount of debt people would have in that school and what is the average monthly payment for that school and how much people on average make after that school. And I think that goes a long way to helping you pick the right college for you that can keep you out of debt. Because some people are in hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of student loan debt. And if they would have just known that before they picked the school, the program, and how much money they would make after that, they probably would make a, I wouldn't say a different decision, but, but at least they would have a more informed decision into the process. But one of the cool things that we learned on that project was people usually don't go to government websites for, for things like I was saying before. <laughs> and <laughs> so we said, how about we take that data and make it open? Right. And allow where people are actually going to learn about the colleges, allow them to have access to this data that the Department of Education has and they can display it for the students. So when the students are searching for the, the perfect college, they can go to the sites that they used to go to to find that information. And what's cool about that is Google saw that and now incorporates college scorecard data into the search results on the side or on mobile on the top. Where if you type in like Harvard University or something, it'll pull up those same things of how much the average tuition is, how much, what is the graduation rate and the acceptance rates for the school and all that's using college scorecard data. Oh, that's super cool. It was really clearly presented to you as a 16-year-old student thinking about which college you're going to pick, 16, 17-year-old. It says, look, you could apply to this out-of-state school that sounds really awesome and you could get this degree and your average income would be, I don't know, let's say 70000 and your debt will be 200000 and it'll take you this long to pay that off if you, you know, can save this much. Or if you went to your state school, yeah, you only make 65000 but your debt will be five. <laughs> you know, something like that, right? That might be, you know, really worth considering, right? Like if it was really clearly laid out, I feel a lot of people just, you know, they chase their dreams and pursue their passions. And of course, you go to the better school. Well... <laughs> You know, is it defined better, right? Like yeah. <laughs> academically, maybe, but is is two hundred fifty thousand dollars a debt? Like I was at a, a restaurant here in, in Oregon, and a waitress. It was summertime. She was home back from college. She was like a senior in college. She was talking to me and said, 
person next to me asked, started talking to her about her, her school and what she was studying. And I don't know, she was just oversharing, I guess, or frustrated, needed to let some steam off. But she's like, yeah, I'm studying there. I'm going to become a music teacher. I'm at this, like one of the elite music schools in Seattle and it's just home for the summer. It's really great. I'm almost got my degree. I'm almost going to be a music teacher next year. It's going to be so fun. Only downside is I have $250,000 in student debt. And I thought like, how does it make any sense if you want to be a music teacher, like a middle school or high school to have that much debt? Right. But I know I just, I think some data would be great. That was like one of the things that we focused on for the the first part of of that mandate of just how do we help students get a debt in default, which was Let's try preventing people from getting into default to begin with. But then we we also said, okay, how do we help the people that's currently in, in debt and default? And one of the things we came up with was Wizard that you can go to if you go to studentloans.gov and it's right there on the hero page. It's just find out your repayment options. And from that, you just you can answer some simple questions, right? Like, do you have a, a federal back loan? And have, are you in default? Or and things like that. And then depending on how you answer these questions, we can actually have multiple different programs that, that you qualify for. And so one of them is a program called Income Driven Repayment, which just pays a percentage of your salary every single month to paying your student loans down instead of the standard 10 year plan that, that you're normally put into six months after your grace period of your graduating college. So basically six months after, if you don't have like the perfect job for you, then you, you may, if someone has $250,000 in student loan debt, they may end up having to pay, you know, $2,500 a month. And that's not easy for everybody. So now you can just pay based upon your income. One of the greatest parts about that particular project was that, so like most people uh, have student loan debt, my sister had, had student loan debt. And I was just talking to her at a bar, like after I moved down to DC and we worked on this project, we launched it, the president, the former president Obama announced it, which was really cool. I was just talking to her about it. And she said, yeah, she's trying to figure out like how to get out of debt. Uh, student loan debt. So I said, hey, have you heard of studentloans.gov slash repay? <laughs> like this project that I worked on. And then we went through it and, and I found that she was in default of her of her student loans and she qualified for a thing called loan rehabilitation, which is you make nine payments, you make them once a month, you know, for nine months, and it could be as little as $5 a month. And what was really cool about that was, so she did that. And then she was able to fix her credit because once you get out of that program, the Department of Education will go back in your credit and say you was out of default and you was never in default and you paid this entire time. Oh, um, nice. That's awesome. For some people, yeah, and for some people, like if you, your student loan started three years ago and it goes back three years, like your credit goes up, right? And for my sister, her credit went up. And after she was able to buy a car because her credit was able to go up, she couldn't get a loan for a car. And then was able to find a better job because she could travel further and not have to take like, you know, in New York City, our transportation is pretty cool where I'm originally from, but, you know, it could take a while. So she had a car and now she was able to travel further. And she also put my niece in like basketball programs that she wouldn't have probably put her in otherwise if she didn't have a car and all this because of this. So it was like really interesting to me that I was able to see like the effect of a project that we did just upfront and, and personal and up close. That's cool. And that's part of that helping people in effect you talked about, right? Yeah. It's wild how personal it was though, right? That is your sister. Yeah, it is. That showed me instantly like the just the amount of impact I can have. So we do a lot of user research here and we talk to people before and after we launch something, but just like seeing my sister and just seeing like the, the actual effects of it because like it took a while, right? She had to do the nine payments over nine months and things like that. But then able to see that long-term, you know, progress and success is just like really amazing. That's a super cool story. So when all these projects and just the philosophy at the USDS in general, what's the story with open source? Like, is it something you strongly push? Is it just something you use when it's makes sense or 
how do you guys think about open source there? And we try to open source as much as possible. So like VA, if you go to the GitHub, they open source as much as possible. Our current website is open source. We try to open source as much as possible. One of the hard parts is like sometimes you go in and we find out that the problem isn't just the front end of the website. The problem is the back end, right? That's what takes a while. It takes adjudicating. So we built those back end systems to help people get through these processes a lot faster. And that's sometimes hard to open source because it connects to like private databases and things like that. Sure. And it's just um, so, so, so tied up with all the specific details. Like it's not reusable, right? Overall, the government policy for all agencies is to open source at least 20% of their code. Oh, interesting. That's cool. Yeah. Do you guys maintain any PyPI packages? Can I pip install something from USDS? Not yet, but we're working on it. <laughs> that's something that we'll, we'll double down on. But you could go to like code.gov, which is just a repository of all the open source code that the government has, or code.mil, which is a repository of all the open sources the military has. So so there are some potential projects. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's cool. Well, and maybe uh, like something someone could do if they came for, you know, three months would be to take those things and make them a little more standalone, like get their own read the docs, right? Like make it sort of more developer discoverable or something. I don't know. Like that that sounds like a cool project, actually. Yeah, if you're listening, it's listening or if you want to come out <laughs> with that, like. More than happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be <laughs> we solid. We have an open source US form system that has been forked by the Austin Digital uh, Government Digital Service out there. And basically, what this project is one thing we realize is government has tons and tons of forms. So, how do you make it easier to just build web forms for, for folks? And they've been using it. And it's pretty cool. And we use it internally here, too. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So uh, one final project, and I want to talk about some of your personal projects uh, in Python because they're very, very interesting. They tie back to USDS. So the final one that's listed, not the final one, but the final one I'm going to talk about listed on USDS.gov is Hack the Pentagon. So we all saw War Games, and that was... Was that the Pentagon? I think it was, right? They were Matthew Broderick hacked with like a 300 baud modem, got got in a bunch of trouble, almost started a nuclear war, right? Typically, hacking the bad the Pentagon is referred to as a bad thing. You shouldn't do it, but somehow uh, you guys like sponsored this thing or encouraged people to hack the Pentagon. What's up with that? That was extremely, you know, it's especially because of the name. You know, when you go to the Secretary of Defense and say, "Hey, we want to start a program called Hack the Pentagon," you can like see, like you can imagine the eyes widening of just like. Hack the Pentagon, like, no. <laughs> you know, how do we work to make that not happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they said, like, not to do it. So so we did it, right? They said, like, we can have this. So he was just like, we're going to do it. Because part of the, our, our thing is, like, you know, we empower and hire great people, and we can come in and, and talk to the Secretary of Defense about it. So after we just explained to them that bug bombings is not new, right? Netscape did it in, in 1995. And a whole ton of companies do it. And this actually would help make you more secure, because now people aren't selling these hacks on the black market, right? They can actually report them to you and you can fix them. And what's really amazing about that is we had an 18-year-old kid uh, win um, and go to DEF CON and, and all that. But when, um, by hacking the army, I believe this program was, and that was pretty cool that we can have like this range of people who can actually go in and say, hey, I'm going to use my you know security skills, my security engineering skills to hack the Pentagon and it's, and it's going to be okay as long as I report it. And that program has been super successful. So we started with Hack the Pentagon. Now we have Hack the Army, Hack the Air Force, Hack the Marines, and you know, and, and we're doing it like every year. So it's pretty cool to see that at first they was like hesitant to say, you know, let's do a program called Hack the Pentagon. But then they saw how extremely useful it was and is now expanding into the rest of the military branches. Yeah, that's cool. The, the stats you guys hear, like 
15 bug bounties are held, 600, over 600 hackers participated, and over 7,000 vulnerabilities discovered and presumably closed. Right, <laughs> <Well, they're> definitely <laughs> closed. <laughs> that's cool. But yeah, that's, that's one of the, the funner ones. Yeah, that's really cool. So a lot, a lot of neat uh, projects there. So one of the things we were talking earlier that you, you said doesn't work so well in government are some of these newer, modern communication platforms, things like Slack and other stuff. And it's not just that people resist it, but there's rules about like retaining all the records as just record keeping in case anybody wants to know what the government's up to and things like that, right? I take a ton of things I got in the private industry, especially startups, for granted. Since I came into government, I was just like, yeah, you guys just don't have G Suite? And it was like, no. <laughs> I missed my <laughs> Gmail. <laughs> so one of the things we worked hard on for four years to get this was Slack. Because in private industry, it's just really easy and Slack makes things very, very easy to uh, communicate with everybody. But one of the problems that they was having with us having Slack was, well, how do you handle records? And the reason why that's important is because of the Presidential Records Act and the Federal Records Act, um, which basically states that, you know, all records have to be kept and maintained and also foyable and discoverable. So one of the things that, that we said was, okay, well, how about we just scrape all of the Slack channels and put them into a .email file? And then from that .email, we'll import that into Exchange so that way it's all discoverable and searchable and people can read it in just a human-friendly way, right? All the Slack records. And all of that is built on in Python. And we're hoping to open source that soon so that way more government, more government agencies can use Slack. Because one thing I find that is super useful and how like our communications changed once we got Slack was instead of having three or four going back and forth emails and then like two one hour long meetings, like this thing could get solved in 30 seconds in the Slack channel. Right, right, right. We're able, able to make decisions a lot quicker because we have Slack. And one of like my small side projects is like, how do we expand this to the rest of government? And I'm hoping to look forward to do that before the end of the year so that we will have guidance on how you can not only implement Slack into your agency and some of the benefits, but also how do you handle some of these difficult things like records management? Yeah, that's really cool. You know, that probably would be valuable for even outside the government, right? Certain large companies or something like that who are afraid of the transient nature of Slack and things like this. I um, mean, Slack has something really cool on Enterprise Grid where you can encrypt all your conversations so only you have access to it. And that was something really important to the government too. So that Slack doesn't actually have, can't read all of our messages and or anything like that because we all the messages are encrypted and decrypted at rest. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Cool. So yeah, I suspect one of the challenges with this is like even just telling other government agencies this is a thing that now works, right? Like just communicating within the giant thing that is the government. It can't be that easy. It is not. But because we have teams at a lot of different agencies and we have, you know, partners and stakeholders at a lot of different agencies, we're hoping that once we can provide this guidance that we can just share it with, with that broader community. For sure. You could also go on a podcast and tell people about it that way. I could. I could definitely do that. <laughs> <laughs> right on. So another thing, this is a really interesting personal story for you, but it's something I think that will be quite valuable to a lot of folks, is this project that you did for... Is it your son or daughter? Oh, my son. Yeah, this is called School Diversity Report. When you started the USDS, you had to move from New York City to DC. And with kids, that's always like, it's like half the hassle of moving is figure out where the kids go to school, who's going to take care of them, what do they do? Like, there's just so much stuff, right? Yeah. And one of the things, so my son was two, I believe, when we moved down to two turning three. And 
So we had to start preparing that, like, okay, but here long term, where does he go to school? And I was at Department of Education, and we helped them with this thing called civil rights data collection, where basically the Department of Education goes out to all these different schools with a survey and says, like, okay, break down a lot of your student enrollment by gender or race, ethnicity, and like a whole bunch of other different things. And schools answer back. So it's a thing that happens every two years, and it's getting ready to release this data, and they access for our opinion. They wanted an API for this. And he said, well, if it's only once every two years, you don't need to pay a vendor millions of dollars to do an API, just at least as a CSV, because most people are going to use Python to just to view the CSV or like R or, some, or Arling or something. Right. And, we have pandas. Oh, <laughs> that's all yeah. we need. <laughs> <laughs> to go through it. So just release as a CSV. And that's what they did. And they gave us a heads up. And I was like, oh, awesome. That like, A, because I worked at USCS, I was able to even know about this data set that was coming down the pipeline. And then that, it made me think like, hey, I can actually use this to find the school for my son since we, my wife and I was looking for a while. And then from that, my wife and I came up with this like a list of things that, that was really important to us. And one of the things that was important to us looking at the data sets and all the data elements that they had was making sure that my son had opportunities, equal opportunities as everybody else in that school for things like get the programs, making sure that it was a diverse school, that this wasn't that was a broad mix of of diversity in school and making sure that like suspicion rates for you know black and brown people wasn't overly high compared to the, the actual population that that was in the school and we want to compare that against all the different ethnicities that the crdc had and just making sure that not only for gifted programs for example that it wasn't just black and brown kids have more of a chance of getting into these gifted programs we went to school that was super diverse and like and everybody had an equal chance to get into these gifted programs because one thing we didn't want was, you know, in the case that if my son did get accepted to get the program, that like his other friends wouldn't because like the, the statistics show that they probably won't be allowed. And we found this perfect school that was pretty much equal all around and super great for my son. And that was how we came up with School Diversity Report. And what was really cool about that was so I presented that as staff because I did it over like a couple of days as like a 20 percent project here at USDS. Presented that at staff, showcased everybody, everybody loved it. And then from there, I actually ended up meeting the former deputy secretary of education, James Cole, to just kind of present him with data and say, like, this is why data is important. And people like me can actually use this data to make cool tools that other people can use and, and can help make good decisions. And one of the, the proudest things that, you know, uh, why I feel like this was super successful was, so a couple of weeks ago, my son gets a letter from school saying he's been put into the advanced reading program at his school. And I'm just really super excited about that. And my wife works really, really hard, making sure he can read and, and all of that. And he's six years old. He reads all my text messages, which is like a consequence of like <laughs> making sure he can read everything. And he's just like, Daddy, like, like what about this? I'm, I'm like, stop reading my text messages. <laughs> Daddy, I know what your login password is. Yeah, he does. He does. And he'll like wake me up. He says, I know your password. I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) It was really cool that that he was getting able to accept this. So one of the things that I did when I originally built it, I built it in Node.js back in 2016. It was Node.js, Postgres, and all these things on my local computer because hosting something on EC2 and RDS can get a little expensive sometimes for like a side project. So this year, I kind of went to see since he got into that, that advanced reading program. Like, all right, now that this data has been updated, what are the stats now? And still pretty equal um, in this school, which is really, really good. But then I ended up saying like, okay, well, how can I release this to the public, right? And one of the ways I did that was saying like, okay, well, for how I'm doing this is pretty much a key value search, right? I don't, this doesn't mean to have servers at all in it. So I just use Python to kind of take the CSV and 
go mine by line and export the CSV to JSON files by zip code and school ID numbers. So that way now it's all completely serverless, right? Like now it's on S3 and uh, CloudFront and I don't have to actually worry. And for your listeners, if you want to go, go to the site, schooldiversityreport.com and it should be able to scale. Maybe we'll test out Amazon's <laughs> <laughs> scalability. <laughs> but yeah, I was, I'm really happy about that project and how, how for me, like, I was able to even have that conversation with the dev secretary and say, like, this is why you should have open data and within the agency, because it's like really important for us to have all information as well. Yeah, it's a super cool project. It's also beautiful, which I thought was that was really nice looking at like this is a really slick little website. There's there's interesting insights in there. And it, like you said, it's fast and yeah, I'll link to it in the show notes. So if people want to check out their local schools or where they may be moving, then they can definitely use this. That's great. Yeah. Really excited about that project. And thank you. I appreciate that you said nice looking because I try to make everything as like user friendly as possible. Um, I think that comes from my experience at USCS is like making sure that it's actually usable by people. Um, and not just like an engineer like me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not just Battleship Gray with like no CSS or whatever, right? Uh, it's really good. Cool. So yeah, people will check it out. You know, I feel like we're in this special place as having programming skills. It's almost like we're the modern day magicians, right? Like you're a guy who wanted to help his son get a better school, right? And then all of a sudden, like, well, this thing you built is like, well, I'm meeting the deputy secretary of education in the US because <laughs> I conjured up this magic thing out of like what was already there, but nobody was using it, right? It's pretty cool. And I think for them too, because sometimes they release this data and they have no idea what people are doing with it. So just being able to showcase that, like, look, here's what people are doing with it. was really cool. Absolutely. Yeah. So definitely people should check that out at schooldiversityreport.com. All right, David, we're pretty much running out of our time here. So I want to ask you two quick questions before we get out of here. First, if you're going to write some Python code, what editor do you use? If I'm going to write some Python code, Sublime. I know people are, are switching to some other things like Atom and VS Code, but Sublime is quick and easy and... I just love it. Yeah. I love the fact that it opens up really quick and I can open up large like CSV file. Yeah, it's cool. It's definitely, I, I feel like, one of the originals of that that genre. I don't know what to call that style of editor. It's it's not like a terminal-based one like Vim or Emacs, and it's definitely not an IDE. But there's other ones like it. Like you said, like Sublime, Atom, VS Code, they're all kind of that gooey, lightweight gooey editors. That's pretty cool. Yeah. You come across, I'm sure, a ton of Python packages. If there's one out there that's notable that maybe people haven't heard of or you just came across and thought that was pretty cool, uh, you got any uh, ones you want to give a shout out to? You mean outside of like Flask? <laughs> <laughs> it can do Flask if you want, but if, if there's something else that you think maybe like kind of delighted you or that people don't know about. I like some of the standard ones like Request and Endpoint CSVs. Pandas is pretty cool. I think Flask is interesting because... I feel like Flask is really becoming more popular. Like it just tied Django as the most popular web framework. But I think it's more interesting beyond that because all these other frameworks that are trying to be like the fresh new web thing, I'm thinking Molten, Sanic, Black Sheep, like you name it. Like there's stuff that I like haven't even, you know, just probably came out this week I haven't even heard of, right? They almost all seem to ad adopt some flavor of Flask's API. So I feel like Flask is having a big impact. Bigger than its credit, like its download credit or whatever. Yeah, one thing I love about Python is there's a there's a framework or a library for everyone and everything. That's like the most amazing thing about Python. Yeah, <laughs> it no really is true. <laughs> All right, there's that import anti gravity XKCD cartoon, right? <laughs> Something for everyone and everybody and everything. Virtual environment is pretty cool to me. Yeah, there's a few. Yeah, cool. 
All right. Well, you know, this is super interesting. Yeah, like I said, I didn't know very much about USDS before, but I think it is a, a great idea. And I, I have definitely heard of the effects you all have been having. Like I've heard of Hack the Pentagon. I heard of the team that came in and fixed healthcare.gov and stuff. I just didn't realize like that was all you guys. That's cool. So maybe give folks a final call to action. Maybe they're interested. They want to learn more. Maybe they want to come do a short tour of duty. And where do they start? Yeah, if you're super interested, please go to uscs.gov slash apply. It's not like the other government forms where you have to go to USA job. Just It's the same type of application you would do in the private industry. You upload your resume. We have engineers or product people who, depending on what uh, community practice you pick, but if you're an engineer, we have engineers who actually do the resume reviews and the, the interviews and yeah, just go to uscs.gov slash apply. But this all sounds really interesting. You want to help your, the government just a different capacity and just have tons of impact. Yeah, awesome. Do you have to be a U.S. citizen or permanent resident? You do have to be a U.S. citizen. Okay. Mainly because of the background check. Sounds good. All right. Well, David, thank you for being on the show. And thank you for all the good work you're doing for everyone. This is pretty cool. Thank you for having me. And if, if all this is super interesting, we can have like one of the engineers um, come on the show and talk about some of like more in depth into some of the projects they're working on. Yeah, sounds like fun. All right, talk to you later. Talk to you later. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Our guest on this episode was David Holmes, and it's been brought to you by The Local Maximum Podcast and Rollbar. Examine emerging technology, software, and social trends through the perspective of machine learning engineer Max Sklar with The Local Maximum Podcast. Listen to an episode at talkpython.fm slash max or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Rollbar takes the pain out of errors. They give you the context and insight you need to quickly locate and fix errors that might have gone unnoticed until users complain, of course. Track a ridiculous number of errors for free as TalkPython to me listeners at talkpython.fm slash rollbar. Want to level up your Python? If you're just getting started, try my Python Jumpstart by Building 10 Apps course. Or if you're looking for something more advanced, check out our new async course that digs into all the different types of async programming you can do in Python. And of course, if you're interested in more than one of these, be sure to check out our everything bundle. It's like a subscription that never expires. Be sure to subscribe to the show. Open your favorite podcatcher and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.